I can't accept the fact that you're recording because my cat's going to bite me. Standard standard cat behaviour. Just go for it. Go for it. Muscle out the bite. Tell her no in your strongest and sternest voice. Or get up and walk around. Oh, the behind-the-scenes content that you just don't get with other podcasts. Checkered flag just doesn't give you this. And you can see her tail. Just her ears poking out the top at the moment. And you can sometimes see her tail just flapping. She's in a foul mood. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to the Undercut Podcast. I'm one of your hosts and award-winning rally driver, Jesse Billington. And joining me, as ever, is the aloe vera to my sunburn, Ellie Mae Taylor. How are you this evening? I'm good, thank you. I did ask you how your rally went, but you ignored me. So how did it go? Did I ignore you? I'm sorry. It went really well, actually. Yeah, uh, first in essentially media class, seventh in class for the under two litres pre-79s and... 19th overall out of 90 entrants so not too bad um for anyone who wants to sort of actually know what i've been doing check out the instagram or check out next week's issue of classic car weekly uh, rally for the ages over at Bister heritage 1979 fiat 124 sport spider bit of classic rallying across oxfordshire absolutely fantastic time but that's not what we're here to talk about we're talking about different racing um we're also joined by timo in a change to the schedule he is here and um what have you been up to timo I've been working with the lovely people over at Women in Motorsport Canada to get some stuff ready for the Canadian Grand Prix. So, but I've managed to get it all done just in time for this podcast, so I can talk to you, lovely people, about the Spanish Grand Prix before we get anywhere near Canada. Fantastic! And we are joined by a guest. I think it's our first guest of the actual racing season as well so far. We've not actually had anyone on for a race review yet. So we are joined by the wonderful Tatum Mandy. How are you this evening? I'm really great. Honoured to be the first guest as well. Um, yeah, just got in the door from the Spanish Grand Prix. So, yeah, excited to be chatting with you guys. Busy travel home? Where, whereabouts have you had to travel sort of to and from sort of for this one? Well, I, I thought I'd save some money and do a flight from Barcelona to Madrid then stay in Madrid for a bit, then Madrid to um, London Heathrow, and then about an hour and a half, give or take with traffic. So, yeah, not too bad. Not too shabby at all. Well, wonderful to have you on, and we'll dive straight into talking about the Spanish Grand Prix. And we'll open up with our usual section of what the hell has happened. And first of all, Alpine have got some news that's not actually related to Formula One, but it's quite interesting nonetheless. And um, they will unveil the latest iteration of their 2024 endurance hypercar at the 24 Hours of Le Mans, which kicks off the weekend coming, I believe. And the display will launch on the 9th. Yep, so weekend coming. I'm reading my own notes as I go along. And uh, the new car will run alongside their LMP. P2 entrant in the sport. Uh, the WEC hypercar class is lining up to be a fruity one. It's doing well at present as well. There's all sorts of interesting names that have joined it. We've obviously got Ferrari enjoying a decent run at the moment. Van Wall have turned up. Their car was on the back of a trailer being towed by an old Buick Skylark wagon coming through France earlier today. It looked absolutely incredible and a bit wacky on the socials. But yeah, it's looking like a good weekend if anyone's heading over to the mall. And next year looks even better now. We know we've got Alpine joining the mix. So, uh, has anyone else got any notes in it? I know, Timo, you've been following a bit of the WEC this year. Hasn't Jacques Villeneuve as well been kicked out of his WEC team for the month? He wasn't kicked out as much as he got a new baby and decided to go and pay attention to that instead for a bit, which is fair enough in the grand scheme of things, I suppose. But, you know, it was kind of fun to see him back racing. Um, yeah, no, it's just been yet another great and a season of World Endurance Championship. There's not really much to say on that one aside from just... It doesn't get as nearly much attention as it should, and this will be 
Well, you're saying that the hypercar class is just it's looking very, very nice indeed. And I'm looking forward to seeing what Alpine can do at the one as well as everyone else. And they just announced LeBron James, I think he's going to wave the starting flag. Yes, so it's all yeah, very, all very Le Mans, I think is the only thing you can say about it. And Cadillac finally have a rival for best sounding car on the grid. Because obviously Cadillac's LMP cars, it sort of rumbles away. Well, it doesn't rumble away. It sort of hums away quietly on electricity. And then the V8 kicks in halfway down the pit lane. And it sounds incredible. But we've got, I think it's a Garage 59 that have turned up this year with a modified uh, NASCAR that they're attempting to do it with. They've got Jensen Button behind the wheel of that one. And that sounds fantastic, ripping down the Mulsanne and our nice straights. So if you're going to pick any of the sort of uh, underdogs certainly back the NASCAR to just have a fun time at Le Mans. It might not be a competitive one, but it'll be a fun time. It's also huge compared to the LMP cars. You forget how big the NASCARs are and equally how small the hypercars are. So if you've anyone's, I know there's a few people, I've got a few friends that are heading down to watch Le Mans this year and uh, should be good fun. I'm reserved heading off to cover the classic later. Um, in more F1 related news, McLaren have uh, they've had an announcement, or well, yeah, they've got an announcement. Red Bull have got a departure. Ellie May. Yes, uh, Rob Marshall has left Red Bull with immediate effect and will be joining McLaren as the first of January next year as their new technical director in engineering and design. As said in a previous podcast, I can't remember which one, but McLaren have chosen to split their technical director roles into three separate teams as Rob. And Rob Marshall's role will be to assess and establish the, the highest technical standards required to design a winning F1 car, which includes bringing in upgrades on technology and infrastructure. With over 25 years of experience, with some of those being with Renault during his Fernando Alonso Championship winning years and 17 years at Red Bull, his most recent role being in the development of their powertrains, Marshall should be able to use his wealth of knowledge at McLaren to help them so that they can move up the order in the further years and become a championship winning team. Impressive stuff. So he's obviously leaving Red Bull and should join McLaren in uh, January 2024, which obviously gives him a bit of uh, that sort of gardening leave through the tail end of the season. He doesn't see what Red Bull are doing with their development for the 2024 car or the tail end of this year's. So, yeah, it's, it's promising stuff from McLaren. And they've been really hoovering up a good bit of talent, restructuring things and trying to get their ducks in a row because they had a glimmer of prospect this weekend, which I know we'll touch on. But we'll move on to that in due course. And... Well, Timo's got something to say. He's raised his hand in eagerness. I was trying to avoid the whole you pointing out I was raising my hand, but never mind. <laughs> uh, no, I'm just saying it kind of strikes a similar chord to what we've seen from Aston and Martin in the past two or three years in terms of they're hoovering up various people from all over the place with the aim of hopefully then doing something with them. And we've seen it work for Aston Martin this year, or at least go in the right direction significantly. So maybe... I don't know how soon this will come into things. I mean, it would make sense if when he comes into his role next year, he starts immediately looking at 2026 because I don't know how much effort you want to put into the current regulations when you know they're going to end so quickly. So again, it's 2026 is a long way away, but fingers crossed McLaren will finally figure out how to get back up to the midfield and maybe not just stay there, but actually move forward as opposed to slipping back again. I think the reason they'll be looking at 2026 is because they need to start trying to sure up where their drivers are going to be for that point because it's it's no sort of no lie that Lando Norris is looking at moving outside McLaren at this point. It's been a great team to get his feet under the table at F1. He's proved his talent, but now that he's got some friends who've moved over to Salba, there's all this sort of draw to move over to them. They'll have this interesting power plant moving forwards. 
there's very little to try and keep him tied to a team that's if anything slipped backwards since he's joined them. So yeah, it's it's going to be interesting to see how they develop forwards as well because Aston Martin are doing a great job. But you know, as you said, hoovering up different talent, but they seem to be doing it, I guess, wider a wider scope. Whereas McLaren, I don't know, picking and choosing singular individuals, I don't think will have as much impact as they think. Yes, you've got this really talented guy, but have you got the overall team supporting him? Yeah, be interesting to see that. I did hear, I mean, it was rumoured that as well as Ferrari trying to get him, McLaren did try to get Adrian Newey back as well. Well, equally, Red Bull have been suffering a bit of a brain drain because there was intense talks between Ferrari trying to snap up Christian Horner at one point as well. I think Helmut Marko came up and said that they uh, eventually, after a long night's discussion of many, many millions of pounds being agreed on in a paycheck, uh, they managed to secure Horner for another season because obviously Ferrari were briefly without anyone at the helm. So it's the silly season has fast begun and it's all happening without the drivers so far, which is arguably more interesting from a technical Is that the only way that Ferrari can get a championship to go to Horner and then she takes Max with him? So you kind of want to have... Yeah, yeah, you could. Oh. Yeah, you're just painting a red ball red at that point, no? Yeah, you're you're hiring the man who sees in aerodynamic flow. That's the only way to do things. Yeah. Anyway, speaking of aerodynamic flow, though, Mercedes got their chance to give their new parts a run in full and on a circuit where they've got some established data to at least work against. While Ferrari also turned up to Spain with new side pods, Ferrari have gone for an in-wash solution instead of, uh, in t- you know, from an in-wash solution where they had that sort of deeply scalloped side pod to very much the downwash style of side pod where you see the side pods taper away on the Red Bull. And it's clear that some more refinement is definitely needed given the progress they're able to make this weekend. Mercedes, though, have made a step in the right direction, certainly. How far that sort of step forward is has yet to be ascertained. It's worth taking a pinch of salt with their work so far. Alonso definitely had damage through qualifying, and though he made up places, he felt there was definitely more in the car to give, which suggests that the Aston Martin, with a good driver behind the wheel, is still up there in the overall rankings. And Ferrari, meanwhile, in a good situation, can rival the Brackley outfit, but poor form over the weekend made this look open and shut for the former world champions. Do we think this is a new form of Mercedes coming forwards, or do we think that all these sort of other factors that surrounded their sort of results this weekend really give them a lot more to say than otherwise? I think it's really tough to say. This, I mean, this is a really the first time we've seen their upgrades as Monaco doesn't really count as such. And I think we need a few more races to see whether they've really worked it out. The car still looked very difficult to drive and we saw that George struggling in qualifying. Also, Lewis seemed to suit it suit its style much better this week. Hamilton did struggle with it last week. But then you think... To this weekend, so many other drivers like Leclerc and Perez struggled too this weekend that you could say it maybe is slightly down to the circuit. Spain is pretty much an all-round circuit. You've got high to medium to low speed corners. Some of these are very long. Some of these are very short. So I imagine it's actually quite tricky to find a, a balanced setup for all of that. And even Max found he didn't have full confidence in his red ball. I think like you said, there were other teams out order this weekend, so you can't really tell Mercedes' true pace. But I definitely think it's a right a step in the right direction. Lewis held second pretty strongly, and whilst it's still a too big a jump to Red Bull at this moment, I think they've definitely solidified their place in the fight for second in the constructor championship. 
George also, I think, had a much better recovery race than Perez and built enough of a gap that Perez couldn't get him in the end. For me, I think it'll be interesting to see whether it's track specific or whether some circuits are going to suit them more than others. But I think for the fight for second is still pretty jumbled up as well, because this is the only second real permanent circuit we've seen this year. The rest have been street tracks. So it's really hard to determine where everyone really is. I think it'll be interesting to see what comes out of the next few race weekends, albeit Canada technically is another street circuit, but I'd say it's more of those in-between circuits. It's not quite a street circuit like Saudi, but it's not a circuit circuit. Canada's a lot more sort of firmly established as a track, and I think the teams have a greater understanding of how to use utilize it. It operates very much more like a track than it does a street circuit. And I think that's going to be a useful thing for a lot of the teams that are trying to hone in their new parts. But specifically, you've got your Ferrari and Mercedes that are going to be looking to try and sort of find a few extra tenths here and there and figure out and understand why the things they brought along react to the way they do, especially with sort of Canada's not great for medium speed corners. You've got a few through sector one, but generally speaking through your high speed sections and via slow speed sections, you've got plenty of really low speed corners, especially again through sort of the hairpins and the tight turns where drivers will be able to get an accurate feel as to how the car feels under load and equally without it, under braking, accelerating away, where they're feeling the car bottoming up, where they're feeling it squat unnecessarily. So there's going to be plenty of data to garner once we get over to the other side of the Atlantic in a few weeks' time. I think it's worth noting as well, there's a lot of attention on the side pods, but Mercedes also brought upgrades to, I think it was the floor, suspension as well. Um, but yeah, I think everyone's been so focused on the side pods that the, we forget the other. Upgrades. The side pods are the very visible element as to what was wrong with that Mercedes package. I think when they said, we're going to change the side pods, everyone goes, great, you're going to get rid of the no side pods thing. But then realizing that's also going to impact airflow over the rear carbon blades. It's going to impact airflow around the floor. You've got, you can't just change one thing with an F1 car in the same way that it's sort of like playing with Jenga. As soon as you take out one brick, it changes the stability of the entire tower. You change the side pods, the entire car becomes compromised all of a sudden. So it's, it's been a big job for Mercedes to pull off this B-spec car. And the fact that it's working is a testament to the work that's been put in by the team as well. I think it's it's no mean feat to halfway through a season go, nah, screw this, we're going to have to change it. Otherwise, we're going to go nowhere. And they seem to be making that big call work, which is good to see and equally something you'd expect from a team as dominant formally as Mercedes. I think they're doing better with their upgrades than Ferrari. Yes. That's a fairly easy one to call, I'd say. <laughs> we'll move on then from the upgrades to qualifying, where we saw Max Verstappen, as ever, on pole, with Carlos Sainz in second place as the first time starting his home Grand Prix from the front row, and Lando Norris surprising everyone, including Max, actually, with a P3 in qualifying. There was a fantastic moment where Max gets out of his car in Park Ferme afterwards, walks past the other two cars that have lined up, and he does a full double take to notice the McLaren that's parked there. And he sort of goes, what are you doing there? And there's this brief moment of very sort of just nods quite happily at Lando. And you're like, there's a good bit of respect there as understanding what Lando was able to produce with that car qualifying-wise. Though there were three drivers, notably, that weren't able to produce very good qualifying times at all. Sergio Perez, P11, Russell, P12, and Leclerc, way down in P19, unable to get much out of that redesigned Ferrari at all and really struggling to find the grip. So it's a shaken up qualifying session for certain. Yeah, go on. <laughs> <laughs> Argue it was better than the race, to be honest. I think 
it was more interesting. You know, we had some mix up in there. I mean, everyone knows Max is probably going to win and Max will probably top qualifying. But I guess for me, Norris, Hulkenberg as well, probably two great laps. And it was great, you know, to shake things up. It's really showing how you've got the new regulations working at least some of the time because we've seen it from as early as Bahrain in the beginning of the season to now, especially with Monaco highlighting that last week and then Spain again it was a track where we weren't really sure what to expect because we actually had a pretty good race last year in comparison to what we normally get. So like, was that a flash in the pan or was that a sign of things to come with the new regulations and the fact that while the race was still probably better than some we've got in recent years, it was definitely, like you say, better on the Saturday in the qualifying and showing how slim those margins were that even if you are Perez in Red Bull or George in an upgrade to Mercedes, it's going to be tricky. Leclerc is a whole other kettle of fish that I'm sure we'll get to later, but it was very, very fascinating to see. And it's kind of nice that we get that from qualifying and shows F1 and Liberty that you don't need to miss with qualifying. It works really well. Leave it alone. Enough of all this meddling with it. Look, look it works. It's great. Go with it. <laughs> it had to be, for me, one of the bizarrest qualifying sessions I've watched because so much happened. I mean, if a couple of things happened, you'd be like, And you oh, watched last good. week. <laughs> well, sort of. It was bizarre. It was bizarre. But it was bizarre, but I feel like this was even bizarre. I mean, two Mercedes collided in Spain again. But it also marks the first Q3 session since Spa in 2012, which at least one Red Bull, one Ferrari and one Mercedes were absent. So you think that's over 10 years ago. That's pretty crazy. Mm. Is that a small showing from Ellie May's fun fact corner there, just poking its head in? Um, obviously, Gasly looked to have performed really well. He had qualified P4, I believe, and then was hit with two three, two triple grid place penalties for impeding Verstappen and Sainz during the sessions. And always dropped down to I mean, 10th at the race start. Russell, like we've already said, had been struggling to find some pace in the cooler conditions, and especially a bit cooler than expected. Um, and then, of course, there was Charles, who was really struggling to get a good run in. And I think well, the reason he had the pit lane start is the fact that Ferrari changed so much of the back end of his car. They actually shipped off a huge amount of parts straight back to Maranello so they could start investigating what on earth had gone wrong with it. So it suggests that there was genuinely a major problem with that car that we aren't aware of just yet. And it'll be interesting to find out if we ever do know what went wrong they just forget to put the upgrades on his car they just fitted it with an open differential from a 1960s ford or something they just went ah this ford we'll put, we'll put something on it from a last championship winning car not realizing that's 2007 yeah oh it's not geared right and oh yeah it's not got the diff for this one. Oh well so yeah interesting stuff from qualifying which obviously led us up to the race on sunday the podium everyone is familiar with at this point in time max p1 lewis p2 and russell p3 so it's nice to see the double mercedes podium there something we haven't seen for quite a while and certainly nice if you're timo who is the podcast's resident Mercedes fan. Say quite a while. Brazil last year. That feels like a, that feels like a long time ago. Yeah, but Max has become a two-time world champion in that period of time since. So technically, well, he Rats was before. Fun. Yeah, he was already. So, no, actually, he no, was already one. Yeah, but nice try. I was trying to think of something that's happened in the time between, but we've uh, all you get my point. Together. Yes. I don't have a great recollection of that. Um, it's been past it for Mercedes standards. Yeah. 
The race, arguably, though, was not the greatest we've seen this season. Perez was able to overcome his poor qualifying, but was essentially covered off by both Mercedes ahead of him, so he was sort of fighting against a pit strategy that wasn't in his favour. Charles, though, had his work cut out, trying to undo his pit lane start, but missed out on points. Crucially, though, this is Max's third career Grand Slam, but I want to know if any of you know where his other two were. Do you mean pole position, fastest lap, win? Yes, yeah, not a Grand Slam where you're fastest in every session across the entirety of the weekend. Is... Sandfort last year? Yeah, I was going to say Netherlands. Nope. Austria. Austria, correct. Can you give me a year? Last year. No, not last year. Oh, no, not last year. Sorry, I just, I just assumed Ferrari. Last year, Charles won it. Yeah, it's so um... 2021 then. 2021. Austria 2021. And the other time that he slammed out or knocked out a Grand Slam was? It was last year. I'll give you that much. So it wasn't Spa. Monza? Wasn't Monza. Abu Dhabi? Wasn't Abu Dhabi. Can you give us a continent? Uh, Europe. (laughs) Hungary. No. Silverstone. It wasn't Silverstone. It wasn't Silverstone. Wasn't Silverstone. <laughs> he was even no, on the podium at Silverstone. Carlos won it. Yeah. Um, I'll just forget everyone in Europe now. I can't think of... It wasn't Miami. I can't think of a clue I can give you that won't give it Imola. away immediately. Yes. Imola. It was Imola oh. last year where... Yeah, Emilia Romagna Grand Prix last year he knocked out yet another Grand Slam. So he's had three now. To be fair, to I was trying to think of boring races from last year and nothing particularly happened there. So Yeah, so it was it was pretty much a Max Verstappen sort of domination. Obviously, I think that's ignore... Oh, no, that includes the sprint race at Imler as well, which he won. So good effort from Max there on that front. Um, moving a bit further down the grid, one of the important things to talk about, I think, or at least recognise, is Yuki Tsunoda picked up a somewhat harsh five-second penalty for contact with a well-running Guan Yu Zhou. Yuki was on very worn tyres at this point in time and simply ran wide on the exit of Turn 1, forcing Zhou off the track and into the long runoff around Turns 2 and 3. So what's everyone's thoughts on that one? Yuki can do no wrong in my eyes. He could be at fault and his face when he's upset. I'm just like, I'm sorry, take back the penalty. You know, he's got a special place in my heart. Bless him. He does have the awkward thing at the moment too, of doing well up to about three quarters of the way through a race and then the team, the car or something just screws him and you're like, so close. <laughs> and it goes back to that thing that so the record he was nearly equaling or breaking earlier in the season of, P11 so consistently it's like you're so nearly there but you know yeah I mean last weekend it was the brakes failing on him around Monaco and then this weekend it was just simply a case of the team left him out way too long on those tyres was he on hards or mediums I think at that point I think he was on dying hards possibly and yeah it just wasn't the tyre to be on at that stage in the race after that many miles and it was going to happen. It was a bold move from Joe to send it around the inside. I know around the outside, essentially at one. I know he was looking for the inside for two, but it was going to be a gap that was going to close pretty hard if you're fighting against Sonoda. Yeah, I definitely think it was harsh. I mean, in some ways, I guess he did get a lasting advantage from it, but just let him and Joe swap then, and then Yuki's still in the points. 
Yeah, that would have been arguably more fair. It would have also kept Charles Leclerc out of the points as well, which is interesting. And Pierre Gasly. Yes. Yeah. He just to catch a break. Um, I'm rooting for him. It'll come. It'll come. <laughs> Aston, it'll be a, he'll be at Aston Martin in a few years' time, surely. Um, we'll move on quickly then to our winners and spinners and we'll get a bit more sort of race recap under this section. So, Timo, I'll let you open up with your winner, please. It'll come as no surprise to any of you that I've chosen Mercedes here. Um, so the obvious reason, P2 and P3, the upgrades, they worked for Spain at least. Like Ellie was saying earlier, we interesting to see how much they work in future races. We've got an interesting few coming up, but crucially, they're all proper tracks. They're not street tracks. We don't have one of them again until... Or Singapore or something like that. Um, so it's it's a good step in the right direction. Toto was saying, let's be realistic about it. We're not, they're still 15 seconds behind Max, realistically. Um, it was amusing that they didn't include Checo in that. It's just an obvious, just because of the race, or just generally they're like, yeah, we, we know we can get him, but we're not interested in that so much. It's, it's more Max, uh, poor Checo. Um, but yeah, no, it's just very nice. And Russell made up for his qualifying and shows that the combination of the new regs and the upgrades and just him being the driver that we know he is and unfortunately joining Mercedes at the point where they started to not be too dominant. He is still a very good driver and Spain, he does quite like it for the overtaking there. We saw it last year with Max in particular battling hard and he did well there. And this weekend as well, it was kind of very Daniel Ricciardo-esque it felt going into turn one a couple of times. It's just, he seemed to be the last of the late breakers and just was like, is that doable? Oh, it turns out it isn't. Even Martin Brundle on commentary was a bit surprised by that, but quietly impressed as well. And even has the time to come out of a few turns and have a little joke on team radio when he's complimented for it and saying, oh, is it only a solid overtake? Is it not worthy of higher praise than that? So it was nice to see. And yeah, hopefully it's it's something that can continue just for the sake of, I don't think they'll beat Red Bull this season, the constructors, but they maybe can push them a little bit forward. They know that they can't just sit on their laurels a bit. And if you're Aston Martin, it gives us a good battle for P2 and P3 in the standings there and will maybe show Aston Martin that they are potentially tied with one arm behind their back in their driver lineup because Fernando is Fernando and Stroll is Stroll. I think certainly on the Red Bull front, if Mercedes can sort of continue to start taking those sort of P2, P3 slots week in, week out, they're going to start closing that door to Red Bull. And it's going to start forcing Red Bull to sort of make some interesting strategy calls like we saw towards the tail end of the 2021 season where they were fighting hard for championships, both drivers and constructors. That's when things really get quite heated. And if Mercedes are able to pull that out of the bag, they don't have to have a championship winning car. but they can be nine-tenths of the way there and they can start really making Red Bull think about what they're up to on track, which will be exciting for fans and definitely rewarding for Verstappen because there's always the point that I think he's always getting a little bit bored just driving around at the front these days. And so the last thing I'll say on that is that you don't necessarily need a championship and cut to win the championship. You've just got to really get in the mind of your opponent and Toto and Christian, we know what those two are like with each other anyway. So if you can try and force Red Bull into some kind of error there. And if you have potentially fraying tension between Max and Checo, if they go for the championship or Checo gets more annoyed that he can't do it and they don't seem to be, or he gets the impression that they're not supporting him as much as they can, then maybe that is exactly what Mercedes needs to be like, right, 
we will have those problems when we get back there, but we're not going to bother arguing now about it. They're going to do a little bit like Alonso was doing this troll, like, don't worry about it. I'm just using the earth to make sure we've got a gap. And I still expect him to overtake him fully, by the way. Um, but it's this kind of, this is an interesting dynamic of play there. And like you say, Max needs a bit of a challenge there because he was even getting a little, not ratty on Team Radio with his engineer, but just defying orders a little bit. It's like, what's the fastest lap? We don't need that. Like, eh, I'm going to go get it anyway. Bring it, it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was his theory that he could essentially, if he did push track limits and get a penalty for it, it would have to be a fairly big penalty to impact his track position or his finishing position was one thing. On the Perez front, it's interesting to see how the rest of his season pans out. I think early on, he believed he could battle Max Verstappen for a world championship. And I think we're starting to see that come very quickly undone at this point in time. And it's going to be interesting to watch how the team dynamic changes beyond Max and Checo to see what happens there, how the structure of the team, how the favour of each race flies, depending on how well Checo is able to stick with Max. That's certainly going to be an interesting one going forwards. And definitely when it comes to Fernando Alonso saying, I'm just closing up to Lance, uh, to Lance. I'm not passing him. That's a man who knows which side his bread's buttered. He's he's not he's not going to send it past him. He said, all it's going to do is change which one of us scores eight, which one of us scores six. We're coming home with the same amount of points as a team. All he's doing is just making sure he gets... It's possibly- just unusual from a Alonso point of view because you're used to him saying, oh, don't worry about it, and then immediately... <laughs> immediately you. sends it. Yeah, that or he knows that there's possibly a nice under under the table coming his way if he if he doesn't upset the boss's son. It's it's certainly an interesting way to look at things. Ellie May, your winner. Mine is Joe Guan Yu. He made it into Q2 for the fourth time this season and he has a solid little race from him. He had a great start off the line from 13th, which I think is where he did sort of most of the sort of he mostly benefited from. So it meant that he was always fighting for the lower end of the points for the entire race. And he didn't have the easiest of races. He was always fighting with either Yuki Sonoda or Nico Hulkenberg. So I think he deserves some points. And that means he now has two point scoring positions so far this season, both are in eighth place. So yeah, he's tied with Bottas in the championship points-wise, both of them are on four, which is impressive to see. And if you compare that to how Bottas went this weekend it sort of is even more impressive. Yeah, I'd, I'd definitely say the points he's earned this weekend are, if anything, not wholly representative of the work he put in for them. He was not necessarily all over the shop, but constantly battling with drivers up and down the field. There was not a moment of respite for the guy on track. And there is a really good racer in there. It's unfortunate he's not got a car that can support that. It's very much the Yuki Sonoda sort of school of thought of really good driver, just needs a slightly better chassis to really show what he's got behind him. I think the Ferrari power plant is good enough, but the development of the Alfa Romeo isn't quite enough to give us the full Granujo experience. And when we get it, I think we are all going to be humongously surprised by what he's able to produce. Tatum, your uh, your winner, please. I mean, I'm a Lewis Hamilton fan, so every day would be Lewis if I could. But um, yeah, I'd have to agree with Mercedes. Um, First one, two in a while. I think we deserved it. I think, you know, needed it for team morale. Lewis needed it. It was great to see a smile on his face. And yeah, I don't think we're, well, I say we, Mercedes are quite where they need to be. Um, The gap to Max is still crazy. Um, But yeah, I think it was a step in the right direction. Obviously, we can't see how well, you know, the upgrades are going in just one race. Monaco doesn't really count, but 
yeah, definitely up there. Great race. Were you in prime position to watch the overtaking by Russell when you were there at the Grand Prix or were you kind of just missing out on that? I was, so I was on the main straight just by turn one. So I got to see a lot of the overtakes this weekend, got to see them collide as well, which got me on my feet. So yeah, great spot this weekend. Very good. Extra satisfaction there. There were some prime overtakes going into that turn one zone. I got to say, Russell really was able to properly sort of send it. He, while he might not have had the confidence of the car through the sort of turns, his ability to line it up on the straights and get it done on the brakes is incredible really and again i think it's a testament to his time at williams where it might not have been the fastest in a straight line and certainly not the fastest through the bends but he knew that he could have an advantage if he was good on the brakes and that's something that's really coming to the fore at the moment where even with drs if he's able to close the gap he then actually completes the job on the brakes which is sort of different to just a drs drive pass it's a proper overtake in that regard and something that formula one's been crying out for for a little while so if that Mercedes is able to develop a step further forward, we're going to see some strong passes from him further down the season. I would say my winner, though, from the weekend is uh, a fairly obvious one, really. It's got to be Max Verstappen, Grand Slam, the fact that he's that confident in what he's doing out on track, that he's able to sort of have this banterous repartee with his engineer through the race and is able to push for a fastest lap, even when there's no need for him to. And when he's sort of that far ahead that he can essentially gamble with collecting a penalty that's that's dominance and it's not necessarily entertaining but when it comes to sort of pure driver talent it is superb one thing you just reminded me of there with it is brazil last year in terms of he doesn't need to do this but he does it anyway and obviously that one had bigger ramifications not for him because of he was already done and dusted and Red Bull were done just at that point. But it was interesting to see that he really still wants everything he can get out of it. And the motive is not always clear because, again, while we're still fairly early in the season, you wouldn't think that that one point is going to be too detrimental to him later. But I was, you can understand it more now, but it was just, as you were saying, that it just kind of made me think, hmm, it does remind me of that. If that's how he's already thinking, that could get quite spicy later. I think it's because it he it's so early on in the season that he's like every point counts because how how many races have we got left? What uh, we're a third of the way through, so we've got another what's that six uh, two two thirds of twenty two, I suppose. Yeah, um, <laughs> or two thirds of twenty one, I suppose, because we missed Imola as well, didn't we? We lost China and we lost Imola this year. So. He's probably thinking, 14. you know, a team could come back near the end of the season. I need every point still. I mean, you know, anything could happen. Red Bull could suddenly have unreliability issues. So I think from a, his perspective, if he can get the fastest lap, then why not? It's an extra point. He needed that in 2020. So... I was going to say he's had championship runs come in with close points finishes and even through the start of 2022 he was looking to try and get as many points on the board as early as possible and that helped him sort of really cement that title fight against Charles Leclerc and then obviously Ferrari fell away which eased up his pressure but the fact of the matter is that he's never had a title that's come particularly easy to him certainly in the early stage of a season so I think we're still seeing that impact of those first two championship wins on Max and the fact that he goes, look, I'm going to have to do my absolute best for the first X amount of the season and then see where it goes from there. Because 
I don't want to be taking any risk. I don't want to be sat on my haunches and then racing to try and catch up and making mistakes as I'm put over pushing myself. I might as well push myself to 99% every weekend and know that I'm comfortably ahead as opposed to sitting at 75% every weekend and then going, shit, I'm going to have to put in the hard duty now and do 120% every weekend because that's when errors creep in. I think there's, there's certainly Would an interesting... Would it be more interesting if he did that for us because we need something to shake the season up? I think he has to, he has to, you know, go for the fastest lap to keep it interesting, or he is literally the definition of a Sunday drive. He needs to be <laughs> competitive with himself at least by going for these things, I think. Yeah, like he went on the radio, asked what Sergio's time was, knew he was a third behind it, and then went, Oh, I'll just go a third of a second quicker than it then. So he basically just sort of in one lap goes, Fine, I'll go two thirds of a second quicker on this lap. And this is one of the fastest laps on the calendar as well. It's a in qualifying, it's about a one minute 11, one minute 12 or something. It's pretty much up there with the likes of Spielberg and Monza as being the fastest sort of or shortest circuit time-wise. The fact that you're able to take out a relatively large chunk just by going, oh, go on then, is really quite impressive. And I think that's it's as boring as it might be to have that happen weekend, weekend, and after weekend, after weekend. It's also damned impressive, really, to have that sort of reliability in yourself to do that i think any sports person that can do that level of accuracy over such a long span of time would be fantastic if england had that with penalties in football we'd be world champions every year but we don't so we're not <laughs> he likes a side quest that's, that's exactly what it is he's just off completing side quests at this point he's just getting I'm like, sure you think max there or jesse pretenders <laughs> Both, really. Uh, moving away from tangents and back to what we're after, spinners. So drivers that have really had a chance to do better this weekend, or should have done better, rather. Ellie May, we'll start with you. I'm going for Pierre Gasly because he really just needs a clean race weekend. I mean, I guess impeding Verstappen and Sainz wasn't all his fault. The team have to take some responsibility for that and that they should have given clearer instructions. Um, because I think, especially with the Sainz one, they just said there's a Ferrari coming up behind. So he let Leclerc go past and didn't realise that some signs was right behind him. And it meant that that great qualifying session to put the car in fourth sort of did nothing for him because then he got a sixth grid place penalty and was down to 10th. And then he was, neither him or Ockham were really anywhere in that race. They were sort of both in like no man's races. And if it wasn't for... His boyfriend, Yuki Tsunoda, he wouldn't have got 10th and he wouldn't have got a point because it, he needed that sort of five-second penalty from Tsunoda, which was kind of good. It's almost like you're saying the mirrors on an F1 car aren't really useful. <laughs> They're great at channeling air towards the rear wing and very little else. Yeah, you can't see them and it wasn't... It sort of almost with Mats, didn't it? Wasn't it almost around a corner? And Fernando Alonso was behind as well. So, depending on where he was looking, what he could see. I couldn't tell you. Uh, that bit wasn't included in the highlights coverage that I watched because I was too busy winning a rally. But anyway, um, Tatum, your spinner, please. It has to be Norris. I think mainly because I was most disappointed with him. I knew, he, yes, he probably wasn't going to be on the podium as much as I kept my fingers crossed. But yeah, it was disappointing to not see him, you know, further up the points or in the points, you know. So yeah, Norris, I'll keep it short and sweet. I've kind of jinxed him or jinxed the whole of McLaren. Maybe even 
uh, indie too, slightly in the fact that I bought a McLaren cap on the weekend. That would explain it. I thought it was because of your predictions, which no, that didn't go, help things to do. No. No. But then it you went and bought McLaren la- merch. I know. The last time I made a prediction about McLaren not doing well, they took it personally and did really well. But yeah, whenever I buy merch, uh, Formula One or Formula E, the team gets such bad luck afterwards. So you should sell all your house merch and see what happens. I've only got the one. It I, it doesn't count if someone buys it for me because I've been given Red Bull and Max Verstappen merch, and that hasn't. So it's if I buy it. You say this. I bought a notebook, a McLaren mo- notebook, at the start of the season, and I never buy official merch. So <laughs> maybe it's a trending thing. The question is, though, if someone's doing really, really badly, as in they could not do any worse, would buying merch improve their standings? So what I'm saying is, could you go and buy like a Logan Sargent cap and just see if that turns around the poor guy's fate? Because he did not have a good time. He's listed down as my spinner, actually. I'll say as much now. Because um, just a fairly torrid time, really. Pit lane start and then no progress from there. I mean, Alex wasn't doing much better in that Williams. It is a bit of a pick of a car at this, at this Their point. Their strategy time, seemed a little odd. Yeah, as well, because I was, I was thinking of the whole race that you saw how feisty Joe was being and Yuki was being and a couple of the other drivers further up. And they still went in points position places at that at a lot of these stages. And you're just thinking, if you're one of these teams anyway, why not just have an absolutely balls-to-the-wall strategy? Because what's the worst that's going to happen? Oh, you're going to finish P18 again. That's You'd be doing it anyway. So why not try something? And it just felt like, I mean, I think Martin was saying in commentary at one point that they all just seem to be reacting against each other. They don't really have a plan as to what to do with any of it. And it just seems a bit, yeah. And if you look at the Williams floor of the car as well, and you compare that to something like the Mercedes or the Red Bull, it seems that they've kind of forgotten to do anything to that. It just looks like, yeah, you can just, yeah, it just, you've done nothing there. It doesn't, it's just a flaw. You've not actually developed that at all. And it does feel a bit like for all the good progress in a lot of ways that we've seen glimpses of, they're maybe missing some key th- key elements of how to improve. Mm. I think the reason we're seeing all these really good battles low down is because possibly these drivers know that their championship will be decided on countback. I mean, if you look at the highest ranked out of the lot of the low tier drivers, you're Hulkenberg with six points, uh, Piastri on five, and then Bottas and Joe both on four apiece, Sonoda on two alongside Magnussen on two. Uh, Albon with just a sole point to his name, and then Sergeant and Vries on nothing. So essentially between those, what's that, nearly sort of seven drivers off the top of my head, because we're really keeping count, you've got all of them fighting it out for barely a point on a weekend on average. And they're going to have to basically have this one decided on count back. Every P11 and P12 is going to count for these guys. So you can see why they're really duking it out, why we saw those fantastic performances from Joe across the weekend, because he knew he needed those points to at least stand a chance of coming home 15th at the end of the year. But Sergeant, we've just seen nothing close to that from either him or the team, which is quite depressing in a way. There doesn't seem to be this sort of energy to anything he's doing or anything Williams is doing this year either. It's quite staid and boring. I can't remember who it was. It may have been Sergeant. 
Did he start on halves? He might have done. And it may have been him, but he, they got pitted at exactly, exactly the same time as everyone was getting... He pitted really early off, off the halves. Yeah. Yes, I think it and was I thought, him. Why? If you're on the halves, then go a bit longer. Let me see if I can find what it would have been. Do, 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 do. Talk about yourself for a second. No, 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 he did go from halves pretty early doors. It wasn't within the first 10 laps or anything silly like that, but it wasn't far off that either. And it did strike me up because, like you said, mate, surely your gamble then is that you're hoping for a safety car or something later on so that you can make these tyres last long. But regardless, you're kind of capitalising that, so it makes no sense to put on the hards and then pit early because regardless of what you change onto then, even if it is another set of hards, and you're like, well, why? They should last long anyway. That's the whole point of them. And I think we saw this with a couple of teams lower down as well. They were making pit stops way earlier than you thought they would. And even with a two-stop crash, a lot of them we then saw as three stops. You're just kind of scratching your head going, do you have a strategy here or am I am I trying to overthink for you guys? And you guys say, or maybe you actually know better. And then it turned out that no, they, they didn't really. I think a few of them like rolled the dice and then went, oh, shit, no, let's back out of that. Um, so they tried to take the risk and then immediately went back to It's this. kind of like they rolled the dice but then didn't let it land on the number. And yeah, like, they oh, went, wait, oh, I didn't need no, to do that. Cheating in Monopoly is what it was. <laughs> It was sort of the same with Haas as well. They mm. picked both their drivers really early. And then you thought, maybe more so with Hulkenberg, you thought, oh, he's actually got the undercut on a few drivers. Maybe this has worked out. And then the ones behind him was a lot quicker. And it's like, yeah, no, that did not work. Yeah, there were some interesting calls further down the field and yeah, just some some people it worked for, some people it didn't. And we saw a few interesting sort of battles of drivers on dying tyres versus fresh tyres they sort of fought to come through because it wouldn't have been under blue flags at that point in time. So it's, yeah, just mixed result from that one. My other spinner I did sort of sneakily jot down too. Um, Leclerc as well, really expected a lot more from him coming through the field. And I think this is possibly hampered by a Ferrari that wasn't set up right and equally just bad Ferrari strategy. Nothing seemed to play into his hands. He was calling for anything but the hards to come in when he came in for a pit stop. And they're like, okay, box, 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 box. And then he comes in, they're going, oh yeah, we're putting the hards back on. Like, Why? Well, I wanted something different and you put me back on hards. I was telling you they weren't working. So yeah, he seems to be fighting an uphill battle with this one. And I think that's, it's going to really hamper. That's his, just this Ferrari career, no? It, it's, it's his Ferrari career. And I don't know at what point he looks elsewhere. Because it's, it's kind of bizarre because Jake and I were talking earlier and it's mad that he's only got five grand wins to his name. And yet he's lauded as like this golden child. And you think if that was literally anyone else, you'd be like five grand three, is that all you managed to get out? But it's Leclerc and he's kind of got this weird mysticism power around him. And don't get me wrong, he is a good driver. He's pretty good. And it's it's just weird how if we say take someone like George, who if you stick him in a not a great Williams or not a great Mercedes, he can pull the he can eat that stuff out of the car the same way that Alonso used to do with the McLaren. And you kind of see that a little bit glimpses of that with Hockenberg in a qualifying lap. So at least you can get it out of some of it. But I think if you give Charles the duffer of a car. He doesn't seem to be able to get that much out of it, and it's not 100% clear why yet, because it's we know he's a good driver, so there's got to be something with the car, but just but when there's a combination of those two, I think he spirals quite easily then, and we're seeing that, because again, it's a Ferrari P19, and he finished, what, P4 
13 or something in the end. Um, it was pretty shocking and you're just there kind of wondering what the hell went wrong. And I suppose if you're comparing Spanish Grand Prix to Spanish Grand Prix from last year, it, it DC finished the race this time. So that's, I suppose, a positive we can take. It's weird how they listen more to Sainz than Charles, because I think if Sainz said, no, we're going on the sauce, they'd be like, okay. Whilst I think he's been a bit more aggressive with them, though. I mean, we saw that in Silverstone last year and he got the win for them, whereas Charles is very much kind of, he's more ingrained with them, so I don't think he necessarily thinks to question them as much, or if he does, he's been with them too long, he's kind of desensitised to them actually listening to him, whereas Carlos... He wasn't with them too long in the grand scheme of things in comparison to be able to say, why the hell are we doing that? No, we're going to do this. I'm going to ignore you and do my own thing. And, oh, look, it worked because, strangely enough, I've done this in a little while. I might know what I'm doing. I mean, I would like to have seen whether the soft would have actually worked because Aston Martin did do that strategy and they kind of got nowhere. So Hmm. what was the best tyre, the hard or the soft? It would be interesting to see Probably on the on the argument between sort of Russell versus Leclerc when it comes to wins. Obviously, Leclerc's got a fair few more. He's only got five wins. Russell's only got essentially one to his name in F one. But when you go to scope it out a bit broader, go to podiums. Charles Leclerc's got twenty five podiums, whereas Russell's already got ten, and he's only been in that top flight Mercedes seat for a year and a half, or barely even a year and a half at this point. And Charles has been at Ferrari since. 2019 so that's 1920 21 22 23 so he's four and a half years in and he's not exactly that much greater podium wise than george russell sort of as a ratio it really suggests that when that car is bad charles leclerc cannot get as much out of it as other drivers are able to you look at how terrible it was in 2021 that he got one podium from it a very lucky one at silverstone because there was no max verstappen and you really start thinking, surely the good drivers are the ones that can get a lot out of a bad chassis. And that's why a lot of people really sort of lord George Russell, because he proved he could do that with that Williams. We saw it with the occasional points scoring or with that fantastic um, quality lap in Belgium in the rain. He can do it. Whereas Charles it's the kind of thing you want to see from your drivers when you're getting them new into Formula 1. You want to see if we give you, not a brilliant car, what can you do with it? Kind of what we've seen with Joe this year, you've kind of, taking the Schumacher route with him in his F2 years, whereas you have a learning year and then your second year, you start putting the pieces together a bit. And we saw that very much from Joe this weekend. And I hope it's not a one-off thing. It's getting the maximum out of it. Whereas if we stick you in a top car, we just assume you're going to do well. And I think maybe Leclerc would have benefited from an extra year or two in a, in the Sauber maybe back, back then because he was promoted so quickly because it was just given... I think everyone was still looking for their Max Verstappen and just yeah. mistakenly thought that there can be about five of them in that one generation. And it's not really worked out like that. Not to say that he's obviously a terrible driver, he's not, but Max Verstappen is in his own league. I think, I don't know. I think a lot of it also comes down to the trust you have within a car. And he alluded to it in Miami that that Ferrari was not the same Ferrari each lap. So how are you going to extract the most out of a car that's so difficult and unreliable in how it's going to go? How are you going to then, you know, sort of extract the best out of it? I suppose that goes back to developing the car with the team more closely and having more input there and better feedback, yada, 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 and all that kind of stuff. It feels like 
from again, just from the argument you're putting forward, there it seems that he just gets in the car and drives it, and there doesn't seem to be there seems to be a communication issue, which again is not too surprising for Ferrari because we know they've got all kinds of communication issues. But it does seem that there is maybe that is the gap that's missing there, rather than anything else. I think from a you know psychological perspective as well, he's had a crap time, and it's just happening and happening and happening. He must be in some sort of rut, and I think maybe. Moving somewhere else, it could be a clean slate. Yes, the car might not be great, but having that fresh start might just be exactly what he needs for his career. It would then you Ricardo in that Ferrari. <laughs> I will say one last thing before well, now I've sort of finished poo-pooing on uh, Charles Leclerc. Uh, races he's finished, the last time he actually finished outside the points was Russia in 2021. Every race since then he's always that he's finished, he's always finished in the points. So, I mean, it's not up until Spain. So it's not a bad record. He's been doing all right. But again, when it comes to extracting stuff out of a less than perfect car, he's not the driver to go to. Who's left to give a spin? I think Timo, you still want to give him. You? Yeah, I'm going to do what Tatum did here is keep it short and sweet because there's really not much to say here. Bottas, for me, the fact that even with a bit of car trouble, you're still finishing below Norris, considering all the nonsense that he had to deal with. And when your teammate is Joe and he's getting up there in the points and getting into all kinds of really good scraps, and you're the more experienced driver, you're a Grand Prix winner. And it's just kind of disappointing. And it seems a bit that um, his, his head, I don't know, he, he seems very chill. And very at peace with everything and all that kind of thing. But I don't know if he's maybe lost some drive for it. He's just kind of far too content with everything. Maybe he's lost that hunger a bit, which exactly. I know you're in Alfa Romeo. But yeah, having a great time in life. But then if you want to have a casual thing, go to a different series where it's not as competitive for seats. Formula One is the pinnacle, as we keep being told it is. So maybe he's just, maybe he'd be better in an advisory role or something if he's not going to be. Because I mean, Teo Porcher is not going to get a chance anytime soon if it carries on like this and you just wonder Bottas needs to really pull some good performances out to show that he's actually contributing because otherwise Taylor's going to be like what is just it mean for a race let me do what De Vries did in Monza last year just give me a chance and then if nothing happens nothing happens but just let me try if it's leisurely for him now then yes maybe mm. it's or elsewhere because you know the young guns are missing out on that seat if he's no longer got that competitive spirit to be up there Winning. It's it's time for him to be shuffled off to uh, basically Weck. I think at this point he can keep his ties with Ferrari that he seems to sort of being building up. Now he's with sort of Sauber using the Ferrari powertrain. Go join Giovinazzi. I'm thinking he's going to go and join Giovinazzi over in Weck and enjoy the Ferrari hypercars. And I reckon we could probably see Porcher in that seat next to Joe next season. It wouldn't be a surprise if we do. I don't know who else is sort of lined up in Ferrari's pocket for that sort of thing, really unless they decide to sort of try and buy Mick Schumacher back. But he sort of fell out. You've got Robert Schwartzman who's mucking around somewhere. Yeah, it depends what they want to do with Schwartzman as well, because I know he's sort of got a bit of a finger in the wet pie as well. So it depends how far they want to sort of spread him. And equally, Sauber have been owing Porsche this for a while. So if the Sauber seat comes available... Or Ferrari ties as well, and then making questionable decisions at times, stick Arthur Leclerc in there before he's ready. I'd love Daniel back as well next season. Daniel's coming back. Yeah, to we all, we all a good Yeah, Daniel's coming back to Red Bull once Perez leaves at the end of the season. I think that's foregone conclusion at this point. No, oh, no, no. It's it, it, it retirement at Red Bull. It's going to be Yuki and Daniel next year. It's going to be great. Oof, well, Max Verstappen just goes, "Yeah, this was boring, fellas. He's bored I'm now. Out. Yeah, peace out. I'm off." 
Uh, we could see something interesting. But yeah, I think Bottas has definitely served his time. And the only reason he's above Joe in the standings is purely because his four points came out of a P8, whereas Joe's have called two P9s. Otherwise, it's pretty close call between the two of them, especially performance-wise. So everyone's given a spinner, I believe. We'll move on to a few other drivers that are worth mentioned. We've already poo-pooed Landon Norris. I was sort of going to stick up for him based off his qualifying. The only other driver that I feel is really worth a mention is Nico Hulkenberg, who had a pretty good qualifying and a feisty little race as well. He was putting in some punches here, there and everywhere, but unfortunately no result for it. That has is really good on one lap and then just really struggles on a race. I don't quite know how you fixed that, but... Fix it, Hass. I think that's a long fix coming. It depends what Alfa Romeo possibly bring to the table next season. We'll have to wait and see on that one. Um, well, that wraps up winners and spinners and indeed any other drivers that we really wanted to touch on. Move on to our next section, which is Constructors Countdown. Still trail the title with a sole point to their name. Alpha Tauri have double that from a hard-working Yuki Sonoda. Alpha Romeo then quadruple that to tie with Haas on eight points. The American outfit still on top courtesy of Countback. A double points finish for Alpine sees them open up a 23-point lead over title rivals McLaren. The French outfit securing fifth amidst Woking's pointless finish in Spain. Ferrari sit in P4 getting left behind by the battle for P3. Down to P3 though, fighting with one hand tied behind their back. It's Aston Martin who are leapfrogged by the new number two sitters. Mercedes 152 points plays 134 and now on a staggering 153 points haul ahead of p2 red bull with 287 points so red bull still lead the championship all is well there but speaking of a different championship entirely it's time to take a look at our predictions and see how well we've done across the weekend and it's zero points for me again. No surprises given the absolute lunacy of what I predicted, which was I think it was a science win, stroll second, and Gasly third or something, which I wasn't far off when we consider where Gasly qualified. If we had a slightly... excuse for not getting points last week, I was close, but still wrong. <laughs> yeah, close but still wrong. But just think if we'd had that race, how incredible would it have been? Well, yeah, but we didn't. Yeah. Um, it was all right for you though, Timo. Two points for a Max Verstappen pole and a Max Verstappen win, which is pretty much a sort of dead cert at this point in the season, given things yeah, are coming out. It's, it's awkward because Max pole was kind of logical, and because of my prediction for the podium being the result of the last race, I don't have any say in it. So if Max just keeps doing what Max does, I'm kind of sort guaranteed two points yeah. <laughs> yeah so it's weird i'm kind of doing a mercedes aston martin job here i know i'm not going to catch ellie may red bull but at least i'm going to keep everyone else at bay yeah I'm you're going to keep you. me the alfa romeo yeah Fer- ferrari has combination yeah optimal sort of hopeless optimism yeah ferrari um three points scored though for ellie may with a max pole a max win and neither mclaren in the points so arguably she is to blame for that norris performance and possibly the just sort of general woefulness of piastri this weekend the he blame. did better than uh he did better than his teammate this is true and he had a couple of nice overtakes he's doing all right he, considering he's... the car he's in his racing was actually pretty good. His race craft that was on show this weekend wasn't too shabby. I think he's definitely making steps further forwards and is getting used to that chassis. And I think we're going to start to see driver does well in bad car performances from him, which is what we he really want to see. He's giving me those kind of vibes of being able to really drag some performance out. He's obviously had a bit of a tricky start of the season, but that is also because he's in a terrible, terrible car. And it's his first 
F1 foray as such. So yeah, it's kind of when you look at the drivers on the grid, the younger ones, and you think who's going to be there 10, 15 years from now, kind of like your Lewis's and your Fernando's. I mean, Fernando is still going to be there, obviously, in 20 years' time, but that's a different thing. Um, you kind of, it's hard to see it with the likes of Yuki and Joe and Sergeant, maybe. You know they'll be there for a bit, but I can't see them still being there as Piastri. You kind of get this, this feeling that if any of them were, it might be him. I don't know which team he would be in at that point, but you could see him just still being there and be just, yeah, we're only just very slightly scraping what is a very good driver. Number two driver at Ferrari to Jean Alesi's child or something, I, I presume in some sort of far-flung future. I have no clue. But it's interesting, the argument with Piastri is it's interesting to see what a year on the sidelines does. Because we look at, the Vries isn't particularly the sort of perfect argument for this, but if you look at Sargent, who stepped up straight from F2, and you compare him to a driver who came out of F2, spent a year doing development work and getting used to the technical drive of Formula One, and then stepped up to Formula One, it sort of brings weirdly less pressure as well, considering he's come off triple champions. Yeah, so he sort of won back to back to back, and then has sort of had a little breather, and then stepped into F one. It seems to have done him a lot better than simply going right. That's F two done onto F one. Especially when you compare it to Joe's first season and Mick's first season as well. Yeah, when you look at theirs, which was sort of a case of well, Mick's first season is a bit mean, actually, considering the car he had. But yeah, if we cheat last year as his first season. Yeah, even then it was sort of very much a case of being thrown at the deep end, sort of going, wow, this is a lot to take on board. And I think the, the best visual argument of that is look at an F2 steering wheel, look at an F1 steering wheel, tell me that the way that that race is so much more technically different. And then immediately just go, right, you're going to have to learn this in the space of four months. We need you at winter testing, able to drive in this car and be able to adjust strats for engines, gearboxes, differentials, brake balances up and down the car. That's a huge amount of things to have to try and learn and get to grips with in the space of essentially six hours behind the wheel actually in the car before you're in your first race after finishing F2. It's a huge ask. And it's definitely this argument that maybe a little bit more sort of testing time before the season starts isn't so bad if you're a rookie coming into the sport, certainly. No one else had anything to say? Okay. I got distracted by Timo. Is your chair pink? No, that's my shirt. No, no, there's no, like a pink no, thing to your bottom no. right. Oh, that's one of those gym balls. Oh. Oh. Like a big yoga ball. Yeah. Have yeah. all your lights just gone off? A light's gone off. Was it your ring light kick. that you use for your, your I'll, professional? I'll professional kick something stuff. in a second. It's professional YouTube yoga. Ireland, the land of technology. The lights sometimes stay on. No, they don't. We'll move on to F1 Fantasy Review is the smoothest segue I've got there. And uh, I've got the stand, thing standing up here, Jesse, so do not worry. It's uh, For the race itself, top three, we've got Ag, again, over 296 points. And then at Francis Rhodes, also on 296 points, kind of going neck and neck in their round-by-round standings there. Michael K, team one in third place with 283 points. First one of us that I recognize is EMT Racing from this weekend in 10th place, 253 points. Then it's you, Jesse Jackie, Racing P12, 251. And then I'm on 14th, not too far behind the rest of you, things, 238 points. And if we have a look for overall, it's not too surprising. Again, it's the same two names up top with Ag leading at Francisco Rose from 2,112 points to 2,062. Alex H932 with 2061, very close second place there. 
And then Nisbet Racing, is that yours, Jesse? That one's one of mine, yes, yeah. Yeah, you're in P8, then you're the top people. You've just over, oh no, you've gone down a position, but you're still ahead of EMT Racing. You've got 1,814 yeah. points, EMT Racing 1,794. And then I've at least been consistent, P16 on the curves, 1,512, and I'm getting close to getting P15 and not too far off P14. So I'm coming, slowly, but very surely. I'm just having a quick check on where the actual podcast ones are doing as well. We've got Daddy's... Oh, they're doing awfully. Very badly. Daddy's Cash, My Neck, Mike Crack, and please subscribe. Uh, They came in at 26th, 31st, and 32nd this week, which overall sees them 25th uh, for My Neck, Mike Crack, uh, 29th for Daddy's Cash, and 32nd for please subscribe. Oof, not very good at all. Where's Experiment Underdog? Uh, that's still last, Ellie May. I'll give you that much. It's got like 60 points or something. Uh, it's 385 overall this week. Okay, let's be looking at the race. Yeah, uh, this week it scored 68, yeah. So lowest scorer. The rookies need to do better then. They, they really do. They really do. <laughs> Daddy's cash also. The, the paid drivers really ought to step up the, step up their game a bit more. I say paid drivers, it's basically Stroll and Sargent at this point, really. We haven't got Latifi keeping things going. Sadly, though, no one's heard from Latifi. He's on complete radio silence these days. Like, he has vanished off the face of the earth, which is quite sad. He was a nice guy. Hmm. I'd just like to have followed what he did in his life, you know? Yeah. Just, you know, every now and again, just go on his Instagram page and be like, oh, that's what he's up to. Yeah, like what, what's what's he actually doing with his time aside from probably eating lots of Nutella? Like, it's, it's not a hard life being the son of a millionaire and a former F1 driver. Yes, but he's going to be doing something with his time unless he's sort of really good at Minecraft or something. I suppose. Yeah. Just none of your damn business, Jesse. This is very true. That's why he's not on social media because it's none of my damned business. Anyway, that leads us neatly to a conclusion for this week's episode. Uh, we'll be back in about two weeks' time with a preview for the Canadian Grand Prix, and we'll obviously next week already. Out. Yeah, well, it's only a week break between when yeah, this goes out on Tuesday. Uh, just over a week. It's just over a week. It's, it's. I just. I just need a break, team. I'm exhausted. All right. Just. Just want to go to bed. Um, we'll be back in due course with a preview for the Canadian Grand Prix. And if that's not enough, in the meantime, we will have some feeder series content looking back at the F2 and F3 action from Spain. And if you want even more from us, you can catch up with an interview that Ellie May and I had with Abby Eaton at Donington Park earlier on in the spring. And if you want more of any of the three of us, you can find us all over the place. Timo, where can the people find you? So good question. You can find me over on the curbs. Is it fast? Paddock sorority and the natural arts podcast. But I'll push you more towards on the curbs just because of the aforementioned Wim Canada interview, which I did with one of their drivers, Erica, and one of their just representatives, Leanne, because they'll be at Montreal for the Canadian Grand Prix with an awesome stand there to try and encourage young women to get more into motorsport there. So that'll be dropping probably next week sometime. Superb stuff. Tatum, where can the people find you? Thankfully, I'm pretty easy to find. Not too many Tatums out there. Um, Tatum, Mandy, Instagram, TikTok, LinkedIn. Yeah, pretty easy. Nice stuff. Ellie May, where can the people find you? 
you can find me on our Instagram page doing the graphics and our track guides or on TikTok. And this week I am going to London Concourse, so I will also post that on the social media. So check that out. Yeah, we're both heading over to London Concourse, actually. And, uh, yeah, on different days. Different days, which means that we both get a chance to go and annoy Alex Brundle once again. Um, he's there with his Ford GT40s, which would be quite interesting. going to get a restraining order for you two Australia. It's, it's really working that way, the fact that we keep bumping into the poor bastard and sort of going, I promise I'm not following you. It's, it's, not, it's not like that. I've, um, I've seen Alex Brundle more than I've seen some of my best friends this year, so... Yeah. I'm like that with Alex Brundle and another racing driver as well. Just sort of keep bumping into all these people going, I've seen you more than I've really seen my girlfriend at the moment, which is probably not a good thing. Can I just say, Jesse, that thing that Eddie Major said, make that the stinger for the episode so everyone hears that. Oh, yes. That's getting cut into the front alongside the cat meowing right at the beginning. Oh, Jesse, where can the people find you? Oh, that doesn't sound forced at all. Thank you for asking. Um, I can be found all across Twitter and Instagram as at Jesse on Cars, as well as eventually a YouTube channel, which is making a comeback. I've got plenty of content filmed. You've been saying it for months. I've, I keep, the problem is cars keep breaking, so I keep fixing them and filming content, but then they keep breaking again before I get a chance to actually edit anything together. The chimney's broken at the moment, so it's got a hole in the exhaust. Sounds like a rally car. Um, so not driving that the midget's been promoted up to daily driver use uh, in the meantime though you can find more of me in Classic Car Weekly the next issue is out on Wednesday which is probably going to be tomorrow when you hear this uh, and there is a review of a very nice 1971 Chevrolet El Camino that I drove and then the issue after that has all the details of my rallying success Timo you look like you're about to try and attack a Hornet and I land what Norris you're sort of what, staring off into space watching something hoping for rain Nah, it's just yeah, it's, it's, it's still coming. <laughs> anyway, that's all we've got time for this week. We'll be back again with a preview for the Canadian Grand Prix.